If you brought your Bibles, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or if you have it on your device, we don't provide Bibles during all this corona mess, but we do ask that you follow along if you've got your Bibles with you, and then I printed our Nehemiah passage there for you on page 5, but in 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to think, tee up Nehemiah 5 a little bit with the claims that Paul makes here what he is willing to do for the sake of the gospel. And then we'll think about that as it relates to Nehemiah. So it's 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now let's go to Nehemiah 5, and again, that's on page 5 of your bulletins. would ask that you follow along with me. We're going to be thinking together about the entire chapter. It's fairly short, 19 verses. Again, God's Word. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, We, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover... I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. 
and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of, the, of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because of the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we do again come to you with grateful hearts for your word. We come to you with grateful hearts for your people who uh, has your spirit indwelling them, who's already been doing the preparatory work for us to receive this. And I pray that his work would not just be effective as you promised it would be, for your words do not return to you empty, but that you would give us eyes to see the work that you're doing and that what we see would be actionable, that you would truly pull us closer to yourself and to one another for your glory and the good of all of God's people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were with us last week, you saw how God made clear in chapter 4 that Nehemiah and his people were facing enemies, enemies that were committed to destroying the rebuilding and restoration work that Nehemiah believed God had called him to do. In Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah faces yet another threat to the work of gathering a people around God, a God who promised to dwell with these people. But it's not a threat from the enemies outside. It's a threat from the inside. We're seeing here that God's people are set against each other. They're at each other's throats. God's people, there is no unity. There's no peace among the people of God in Nehemiah 5. Now, all of us, members of Grace Community, elders, deacons, ministers, we all make promises to one another when we join the church or when we become ordained, we make a promise to promote and strive and maintain the peace and purity of this local body. A promise members make is this. I promise to promote the peace and purity of the church. A promise elders and deacons make when they're ordained to make this promise. I promise to strive for the peace, the purity, the unity, and the edification of the church. Ministers like myself, when we are ordained to a particular body, make this promise. I promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church I will serve. Whether a member, an elder, a deacon, a minister, we all make promises to God, before God, and to one another, and before one another to strive and promote and to be zealous in faithfulness to maintaining the purity and peace and unity of the church. We are together making promises that we will together be about one thing, the peace and unity of the church. Now, why is that? 
Why is that? And all the vows that we make, those are the ones that are alike for us, regardless of the roles that we have in this church. Why? Because peace is a very fragile thing. It can be lost. It can be destroyed. It can be undermined very, very, very easily. It's a gift from God that we can abuse, misuse, and destroy. And I think part of why we make these promises to one another and before God is that we have to value the peace that God has given us, and we have to work to protect it. Where there is no practical lived-out peace, where disunity characterizes us more than unity, we have begun to walk down the road where we will no longer be a unified people. We are threatening the unity of this body. And when we do that, we are threatening the unity that we have with God in Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught us how his people were a distinct people. And you might remember that passage of scripture. He begins to preach and the content of his sermon are the Beatitudes. You remember some of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And on and on he goes. You see what he's doing there. And those who are in me will look like this. This is how you'll respond and look like to the world. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how his people should be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right after the Beatitudes. He's stressing there the witness that his people, believers, are to have to an outside world. So appreciate his emphasis, at least in those two points. A distinct people are going to look a certain way, and they're going to live a certain way. And then after that, the Beatitudes and light of the world and salt of the earth, he talks about how now we together as his people are to treat one another. Do not sin against one another in anger. Do not insult your brother. Do not accuse your brother of being a fool. All those do nots. Then he says, instead, you must be reconciled with your brother, meaning we are to live at peace. And then he goes on and he says, don't even think about coming before God at his altar with your gifts. Do not approach him if your brother has something against you. He's not saying don't do it if you have something against your brother. He's saying if you think somebody has something against you, you are not welcome to the altar. You're not welcome to interface with God or to bring him your gift. Jesus calls us to be aware of whether others are at peace with us. And that shows us that we actually don't have free access to him or his altar. That we can't just willy-nilly bring him a gift if one of our brothers or sisters has something against us. A distinct people gathered by God must be a unified people at peace with one another because God requires that we be at peace with one another before we begin to live as if we are at peace with him. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. He calls us ambassadors of reconciliation. Remember that part? It's a great chapter. He's saying there were to be peace spreaders. And he says there at the end, the reason we are to be peace spreaders is because we've been given the gift of reconciliation. How? Because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. We have been given the supernatural gift of peace and unity because we, have, we now have peace with God through Christ. Nehemiah 5 tells us about a fractured people. 
of people who are in the process of destroying one another, of people of God who are not unified. And Nehemiah, as the leader, must address this if his goal is to be achieved. Remember the goal, right? He's going to rebuild the wall or restore the temple. For what purpose? That prayer back in Nehemiah 1. Because we're going to claim the promise, God, that you made, that you are going to set your glory among your people. In other words, there's going to be this interface between God and his people. It can't happen if God's people are devouring one another. The threat to God's people in chapter 5, I maintain, is a more dire and potentially destructive threat than anything Sanballat and Tobiah and the Sumerian army could have brought in chapter 4. We'll think about it together and see if you agree. Just three parts. First, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to think about the problem, a predatory people. Verses 1 through 5, a predatory people. Second, a call to repentance. Nehemiah stepping into the problem and beginning to address it. A call to repentance in verses 6 through 13. And then briefly, how Nehemiah then as the leader leads by example in verses 14 through 19. So a predatory people in verses 1 through 5. A call to repentance in verses 6 through 13. And then Nehemiah leading by sacrifice in verses 14 through 19. So first, a predatory people. God's people are desperate. And they're becoming destitute. And Nehemiah hears that a panic disruption is now breaking out and the unity of God's people is falling apart. All those working on the wall who Nehemiah had called into service, they had to leave their farms and they had to leave their trades. Crops were not planted and therefore will not be harvested. Tradesmen took sabbatical so they were not receiving their regular income. This is what verses 1 and 2 are telling us. This is why there's this great cry from those who were left back in their homes and their villages. The moms and sisters and daughters and those unable to work. The crops have not been tended to, therefore we have no investment. The tradesmen have not been working, therefore we have no income. We can't buy food. We can't pay bills. They are hungry and growing poor. Among God's people, now into this kind of fix, step God's people who are predators, fellow Jews. They saw an opportunity among their brothers to make money, and they wanted to take advantage of the dire situation that so many found themselves in. And they were predatory in two ways, at least. First, in verse 3, families were trying to make do. The ones who had property in order to continue to eat and make good on the bills they had mortgaged what they had so they could then buy the food and pay the bills. But as always happens, going into deeper debt to pay debt makes matters worse worse. With no crops, no payments for their trade work, they begin to run out of money again, unable to make their mortgage payments, unable to buy food, unable to pay the bills. So verse 5 expresses the fear these people had that was already being experienced by some among the community. Those who are God's people, those who had borrowed money from their brothers and could not pay it back, had to begin to try to settle their debts the only way that they could, the only resource that was available to them. Their children, they owed fellow Jews money. They didn't have the money to pay them. And so they sold their children into slavery to pay that debt. Predatory lenders scheming in order to get the impoverished deeper into debt, thereby getting more money or more slave labor 
faster by getting more property. God's people were set against one another in repulsive ways. But you understand what's going on now. These predators had their mind and hearts focused on one thing, getting more money, getting more property, getting more slave labor. And those who are in dire need and in debt had their minds and hearts set on one thing, getting out of debt, getting the injustice addressed. All of God's people devolved into enemies of one another, one taking advantage of another, one seeking to settle the injustice by the other. No one wanted the same thing because they were at each other. That's the recipe for peacelessness, disunity, and destruction. And this is the palpable threat that faces Nehemiah. Yes, he could probably finish the wall. He could even probably restore the temple, maybe more beautiful than what Solomon had built that had been destroyed. But Nehemiah knows that that would all be for nothing because as God's people are set against each other, they will not be welcomed into God's presence. So what would he do? What could he do? Look at his call to repentance in verses 6 through 13. Nehemiah tells us that he's angry. He's even enraged at what he has heard. He can't believe that brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites, are doing this to one another. The phrase in our Bibles that follows that, he takes counsel within himself, means that Nehemiah was wise enough to pull himself together. He had every right to be angry, a righteous anger, but he knew that it would be unwise to explode and go off because of what he sees as a deep injustices. So he's facing a real threat, and he has to think in a sober way, how must this be addressed? This is Nehemiah applying wisdom. And his strategy then is to gather the leaders, the wealthy, and call them to account, verses 7 through 8. Now we're going to think about three ways in which disunity and peacelessness can begin to be addressed. So I want you to hang, hang on this with me. The first step that Nehemiah takes to retrieve the peace and unity that's being lost is to gather the group together, many of whom were offenders, many of whom had leadership responsibilities over the offenders. And what does he call them together for? To admonish them, to call them to account for what it is they're doing. He addresses the depth of offense by buying and selling fellow Israelites as slaves in the second part of verse 8. He's saying this is something Jewish people might have to do with Gentiles or enemy nations. If you find yourself in debt to them, you may be able to give your child up for servitude until that debt is paid. But you're God's people. You're seeing one another as commodities. Nothing marked their fractious disunity more than seeing each other as a means to an end, selling children to one another. This, he says in verse 9, is shameful on a second level. Consider, he's saying to these people in his admonishment, consider the witness you're having to the godless nations that we are surrounded by. You, people of God, were rescued and restored in order that you might be a distinct people in the midst of these enemies, that you may be a witness to the God that we serve. But here you are living just like the enemies of God. There's no distinctiveness about you. In their disunity and peacelessness, they were sacrificing their distinctive identity as God's people. 
they were unraveling it all. And we see there that Nehemiah's admonition is effective. The officials, the nobles, the priests, they had nothing to say. They were stunned. Silence. There's no defense. There's no excuse. You gather the offenders and you admonish specifically. Secondly, in the stunned silence, I think we can read into that conviction. Another non-negotiable. If hard-fought peace and unity is to be won back. What he said was true, and by the Spirit's grace, they were feeling it. In light of their silence and conviction, Nehemiah calls them to the third necessary element in order for peace and unity to be restored to the people of God. You admonish them specifically. You pray that the Spirit would convict them, and then their response to that is repentance in verses 10 and 11. He includes himself in this call to repentance. He, too, was charging interest to the loans he made to God's people. And he says, no more. Further, whatever these nobles and officials and priests have taken from God's people, he says to them, you must return it. And he's very specific here. Repentance is always very specific. In verse 8, he makes reference to buying back the enslaved children. Here in verse 11, he lists specifics of what must be returned that they have taken as they've taken advantage of those who are poor. You must return their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and their interests and their wine and their oil and all of it. In other words, there is no half measures here. These predators and cheats are no longer silent, we see in verse 12. They've heard Nehemiah. They've been convicted and now say they will do as Nehemiah says. They will return it all. More than that, they will no longer require anything from them. There's the real cash value of repentance. We will not only make right what we've done wrong, but we will no longer do that anymore. We see in verse 13, Nehemiah is taking on the role of a prophet here. So understand, he's called them together and admonished them. By God's grace, they've been convicted. He has spelled out the steps of repentance, and he's not done. In verse 13... What he wants to do is to make sure these people understand that what's going on here is very God-centric. This repentance has God in the middle. Those being called to repentance would not have only seen what Nehemiah had done, but they would have heard. You see what he says there. He's standing before these guys, and he's, he's doing his robe like this. And he's saying, may God shake you out of this unified group of people so that if you do not do as you've promised you will be banished from him and from one another. If repentance is not brought, they will be shunned, shaken out, eliminated from communion with God and God's people. God's judgment illustrated is often used by God to work repentance deeply into the people he is committed to reclaiming. A modern-day instance among God's people is the church discipline that we practice here in being barred from the Lord's table. When someone appears to be hardening their hearts regarding what God calls them to, when they continue in unrepentant sin, and now we understand from chapter 5, in that sin, what they're doing is separating themselves from Christ and his people. And in separating themselves from Christ and his people in their sin, they are threatening the unity and the peace of the church. So the illustration of what God does with those kinds of people is to bar them from the table bar them from this sacrament. You see how it works. We separate them out that they might feel what their sin is bringing upon them. 
So if someone who is barred from the table because of godly discipline is here on Sunday morning, what they see is people who come to the Lord's table, a communion of people seeking communion with God. And that person feels and sees and even hears what it's like to be cut off from God and his people. They feel what it may be like to be shaken out of God's robe and cut off from him and his people. This is what the noblemen, the officials, and the priests see in Nehemiah shaking out his robe before them. The promise, God will not give you the privilege of being counted among his people. You will not be given the privilege of gathering around him unless your repentance is deep and real. You will be shaken out, cut off. Instead of basking in his glory as the temple is restored, you will be on the receiving end of his wrath. There's a point, there's a product, there's something that God must work through those points, admonishment, conviction, and repentance. For God's people always holds out the opportunity to be re-engaged. The covenant of God's promise is always before God's people, but so is the reverse, the covenant curse of God. God's presence is promised to his unified people. With his presence comes his peace. The opposite is true. God's wrath is promised to those who reject him. And with his wrath comes eternal damnation, being shaken out of the robe. The nobles and officials and priests got this. They repent, as he says there, and the people did as they had promised. Now, what about Nehemiah? Now that he has begun to administer this kind of admonishment, as he's called them to repentance, what does he do? Verses 14 through 19. He understands his role both as leader and servant. For the first time in the book, we hear that he is now officially a governor of Judah, working for King Artaxerxes. Now, he may have arrived on the scene as governor, but we don't know that. This is the first time we hear it. But he's a different kind of governor, he tells us, and those who preceded him. You see, Nehemiah feared God. He loved him and followed him, verse 15. Nehemiah was about one thing, and all of this is to that end, that God's people would be regathered around God and his glory, and God's glory descends on the refurbished temple. Even while continuing to build a wall, he says, meaning him as governor, he was out there. He was hauling stones and setting them and stabilizing them as governor. Nehemiah left the comfort of his governorship and worked alongside his servants. Nehemiah, the governor, an official of the king, got his hands dirty. Those who were assigned to him as governor, his servants, they were also put to work on what God called Nehemiah to do. Nehemiah is single-mindedly focused on what it is that his purpose is. And he never lost what it was that he was called to do or who it was that he was called to work for. And you see there in that passage, this affected and informed everything he did, every choice he made. A governor obligated to host others, other officials from surrounding nations, fellow Jews. He was given an expense account for such a thing, one from the tax coffers, an expense account that had to be dependent upon the fellow Jews that he was leading. But as he says in the end of verse 18, this burden would have been too much, too heavy for God's people. So he fulfills his function as governor, but all the expenses came from his own pocket. And this chapter ends with a prayer from Nehemiah to God. Remember for my good or my blessing, O God, all that I have done for this people. 
Now let that settle on you for a little bit. Just imagine, imagine what Nehemiah is asking here. He's asking God to see. He's asking God to take account of the fruit of Nehemiah's faith in God himself. God has called him to faithfulness. Nehemiah is asking God to see at great sacrifice how he has pursued that faithfulness. Nehemiah has sought to love God and God's people with everything he has. And he's saying, God, please take note of this. How glorious is that prayer, really? How many of us would like to have the spirit-born boldness to call God, the one who sees all, to remember our pursuit of faithfulness to him and his people? When things seem to be coming unraveled outside our threats and inside the abhorrent sin, Nehemiah addresses it all for the sake of God and his people. Now, I want us to end where we began. Nobody in here is selling children in order to pay off debt. But we've got to make some application, and I think the application by the Spirit's ministry may help us continue to be people who want nothing more than God's glory in our unified peacefulness. The invaluable peace and unity God has called us to is so fragile because any one of us at any point in time can set ourselves to destroying it, sometimes subconsciously without even knowing it. That's why we make promises before one another and before God to pursue it, to strive for it, to maintain it. Peace and unity as we learn here and I think as you learn in your own homes as we have at times learned in this church. It doesn't just happen. We don't just fall into peace and unity. It must be deliberately and intentionally stewarded by those God has given that gift to. Lacking peace among one another or threatening the unity we have in Jesus Christ with one another destroys then and begins to destroy more and more the character that God has given us as his people. Being at peace, being unified, is a great witness to a chaotic world that seems to be burning more and more every day that passes. But being a unified people at peace, we have to all be about the same thing. All of us must have intentionally and deliberately as a first priority the same goal. Faithfulness to God and his glory and the good of one another. That's it. That's the unifying goal that continues to allow peace and unity to spring forth here. If there's something else, some issue, some platform that takes that goal, God's glory and the good of his people, takes you off of that single-minded task, you have become a threat to the peace and unity God has called you to peace and unity with him, peace and unity with one another. And not only that, if something becomes more of a priority than God's glory and the good of his people, you will then inevitably begin to discard or disregard those who do not share your passion for the thing that you have made the highest priority. Or at the very least, agree with you on that thing. Setting you then against God's people who may differ with you on the issue. Please see from God's word, this is not a small thing. It feels small maybe sometimes. We think it's not a big deal and we're kind to those who disagree with us. 
But just think for a minute. This is the admonishment part. Think for a minute. What is, what is your outlooking posture? How does the world see you? If, they were, if, if you were to ask them what they know about you, what would they say they know about you? And then to make it a little more personal, bring it in here. We don't know everybody as well as we know everybody else. There are people here that you just kind of have some familiarity with, but you don't know them well. What? How would you define that person? What do you think they're all about? If what the world sees, if what your Facebook friends see, if what your Twitter followers see, if they know you primarily because of the political stands that you take, because you're a huge supporter or a huge detractor of the one who occupies the Oval Office, or they know you because they know where you stand on whether we ought to wear masks or not, or what Dr. Fauci or CDC is saying, or Big Pharma is promoting, or where, whether the coronavirus is really as serious as everybody says it is, or they know you by because you have a real definite stand on whether schools ought to stay open or closed, or where you stand on Black Lives Matter, or police reform, or the riots. If any of those things are the banners that you raise, if any of those things are what the world knows about you, then you're known for something other than as a witness of the unity and peace that God has won for you in Christ. And your witness has been compromised. And you may already be a threat to the peace and unity of the church. You know why? Because you've decided to trumpet something other than the glory of God and the good of his people. You've chosen sides in a peaceless world. You've signed up with a tribe and determined your enemies. As far as the world goes, and perhaps as far as this church goes, you've communicated loud and clear what your priorities are. And at least in that instance, they are not Jesus and his glory and the good of his people. Does this bring conviction? Will that bring repentance if needed? For the sake of peace and unity of God's people and the witness we provide to a peaceless world, I pray that it does. Nehemiah prefigured the Lord Jesus in so many ways. We've talked about a little bit of it. Right now in chapter 5, he's pointing us to one who didn't just leave his governor's chair to build a wall, but he emptied himself and left the glories of heaven so that he would become a servant and begin to build a people for himself. Nehemiah is pointing to one who didn't simply, out of his own pocket, eat with sinners, but he is pointing to the one who became poor so that we might become rich in him. May our gathering around him and our service to him and to one another be the thing that people know about us, this unified, peace-overflowing community. May that be what we show one another in the world. If that becomes true, then we have every right to pray the prayer that Nehemiah prayed. God, remember us for all that we have done for you and for your people. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that we, those of us who need it, that you would truly convict us, that you would show us the steps of repentance that we might need to take in order to be the kinds of people who are trumpeting your glory and who are committed to the good of your people. 
that we would not be sidetracked with the hot topics of the day, that we would not feel compelled to have an opinion on every subject, but that we would just be burdened for the good of those in this place, that we would want to love them in practical ways, and that we live our lives every day in bringing glory to your name. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.